UFM with Green Fern. Fuel your day with Green Fern's new high protein cooked chicken breast fillet. 100% natural and packed with flavour. Thanks to Jenny Green for her entertainment this afternoon. I hope you're all locked away safe and sound as storm barrel rages across the country. It's Tuesday, December 7th, and you're welcome to Game On. Soccer, rugby and Gaelic games make up our agenda this evening. The final round of group games and this season's away for the Champions League is already underway. Man City and Leipzig has already kicked off. Man City are true, but it didn't affect Pep Guardiola's team selection. Mark Langdon will be with us. For respect for the competition, respect for Leipzig, first of all, for Bruges and PCG. Of course, we have to, to try to do it. And every game is a good opportunity to improve, to improve and improve. There are many things that still we can do better. That's uh, Pep uh, scoreless in that one. Paris Saint-Germain already 2-0 up on Club Bruges. COVID has already had an impact on the opening weekend of the Heineken Champions Cup. Scarlets today have had to pull out of their opening round fixture with Bristol awarded a walkover. We're going to get the views on what is uh, considered in Wales to be somewhat of a controversial move. That uh, reaction going to come from Sean Holly. Rudis Scarlets moving away swiftly. Good handling, risky in this weather, but it pays off. And now Tatchell out wide goes. He goes. We'll also be talking about some of the big Gaelic game stories of the week as the Dublin County Board Chairman John Costello rattles a few cages in his report ahead of the county's convention. And Mayo have done it, it's over. Mayo have beaten Dublin. They've taken the biggest scalp of all with a young team. Dublin's 45 match unbeaten run is over. All of that to come. You can text the program. Our number is 51552 or you can tweet at Game On 2FM. Game On on 2FM. So, Damien, COVID seems to be everywhere. This has an effect in Chelsea and Spurs as well. Mateo Kovacic uh, for Chelsea. Thomas Tuchel reported earlier that he's out, obviously, with N'Golo Kante being out as well. And Chelsea, I suppose, suffering their first defeat in a long time at the weekend. His 3-4-3 system could be under a bit of pressure. And Antonio Conte obviously had, had some, also had some bad news this afternoon with a number of first-team players and two members of the coaching staff having tested positive. They obviously have a big game in the Europa Conference League and the night against Rain, and there is rumour that they may seek a postponement of their match on Sunday versus Brighton so it's pretty much everywhere isn't it? You see the, the UEFA rules are fairly clear cut if you have 13 players including a goalkeeper then off you go tough look yeah. see they got um, in Portugal a couple of weeks ago where yeah. was it Benfica were playing a team down the tail end of the table they started with 9 players including 2 goalkeepers which you'd have to wonder about the sporting integrity of all these well, you look at the, the, the Champions Cup, and I mean, obviously, Scarlets can't feel the team. It's front rows they're struggling with, so they've had to forfeit all five points to the Bristol Bears. And look, we're going to get into that story in a while. But um, no, I think it's the Premier League is different. Uh, obviously, they'll have to play the game on Thursday, the, the Europa League game, but uh, the, they can seek a postponement with the Premier League. And the rumour is that they might seek one for Sunday's game with Brighton. But surely these teams all have so many players, under-23s, reserve, academy players, that surely they can cobble together a team somewhere along the way. You would have thought so. Um, 
Yeah, you would have thought so. But look, you mentioned the game a while ago in Portugal. I didn't see it, but Benfica versus whoever it was, they couldn't cobble the team together under 23s, 18s, 16s, whatever it was, they couldn't find them. The cynical part of me on that night was if it was Benfica who were towards the top end of the table that were affected in the same way, would the game have gone ahead? And I'm inclined to think it probably wouldn't have done. But it's okay for the team second from bottom or third from bottom in the table. What you know, not who you know. Well... There's an element of that. Maybe Benfica have better sway and better pull and all of these things. Or maybe that's just me being cynical, Ruby. I don't know, Damien. You'll have to tell me. I think you are being cynical. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, people will argue it either way. Do you have to fulfil the engagement? Is it just tough luck on you? I think it's out of out of people's control when it's COVID. Mm. I can, look, if it's injuries and you know you're, 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 you get on a run of bad injuries with a team, well then that is hard luck but I think in a situation like this it is exceptional circumstances so and I know there's a huge schedule how do you fit everything in and matches back up on each other but uh, even looking at the rugby one and as I said we'll we talk about it in a while but you'd wonder why it couldn't have been pushed to Tuesday I, or Wednesday yeah. I just think for the integrity of the competition and we'll talk to Sean Holly about this who has obviously living in Wales former Ospreys coach has been involved with the Welsh national setup in the past as well is eminently qualified to give us an insight from Wales on this I just think for the integrity of the competition the Heineken Champions Cup you have four pool games you know straight away you lose your opening game you're up against it to try and advance from beyond your pool and now you've got like Scarlets this weekend for no fault of their own they haven't even been able to make it back to Wales unlike the Munster lads who are at home and are quarantining at home um, the Scarlet Squad are in Belfast. Why is, the, Belfast. Why, why, why is that? My understanding, and Sean will explain all of this to us, is my understanding is that the Welsh Government wouldn't allow them back into the country so that the only way they could get a flight home or a flight back to the United Kingdom uh, yeah. was stick to, come to Belfast. Stick them on our island. No, yeah. they into your own. Yeah, see, there we go. Look, we, we've achieved... <laughs> there's the, cyn- there's the cynic in me. Nine, nine minutes past six. The whole country has had, had a day where COVID hasn't been mentioned on the airwaves. It's all we've talked about. And now we've dropped in the, the, the minor matter of our friends north of the border being part of the United Kingdom. So we've... The texts are bound to fly in, Ruby. 51552. Create, create a bit of controversy, if nothing else, Damien, isn't it? it? We'll, get it we'll get it talking along the way. Um, so anyway, we've, uh, we've all of that to come between now and uh, 7 o'clock. Um, Orby Leipzig have just taken the lead against Manchester City. 24 minutes played. Um, so City a goal down away from home and Paris Saint-Germain who if you believe the rumour mill is a club in complete disarray they're all killing each other behind the scenes but they're still 2-0 up against Club Bruges so it is and I think we're going to go and move to GAA Damien are we with Damien Lawler I know it's the off season for the GAA but in honour of Marie Crow not being here I think we better mention it what do you think uh, come here, we'd be in trouble otherwise. I, I'm only here to serve. I'm only filling, keeping the seat warm, Ruby. So I'll do keeping whatever you want. Alive. Yeah, I think we'll go there. And I actually was intrigued if Damien Aller is on the line with John Costello today, Damien. Um, yeah, right. Thanks for taking our call. And I was amazed that he went and brought yeah. back up the Dublin training session. I thought that sleeping dogs lie. I couldn't <laughs> believe he had to have a go. Yeah. Um, first of all, uh, what's the off season? Uh, secondly. There's two or three things that point out it's Christmas to me. Uh, one is the RTE guide. Uh, one is my, my annual battle to lose a half stone so I can put up a stone over Christmas. And uh, number three is John Costello's annual report. Uh, landing around this time every year, around lunchtime every year. And he, he, always, he always has a few darts to throw, Ruby. And yeah, look at... I agree with you in a, to an extent. Um, he... 
he referenced the COVID breach that the Dublin senior football team had earlier this year. He referenced the fact that it shouldn't have happened, that they dealt with it swiftly, um, that they issued a statement when they didn't have to be coerced into it or anything like that. And he basically said it was wrong. Deep breath. Then he kind of had a go at the media and, and parts of it and the coverage and the tone of it and posed the question, would this scrutiny be placed on other counties? Um, you know, he kind of felt that some of the headlines were outlandish. Uh, he definitely felt that journalists weren't out of their way to try and squeeze an extra bit of juice out of the story. And he d- devoted quite a bit of his report to, um, to scrutinising the whole thing. Um, referencing Brian Fenton and Dean Rock along the way who had done interviews subsequently saying it shouldn't have happened. So again, all the time emphasising that it shouldn't have happened, but then taking grave issue with the the actual reportage of it. And probably like yourself, Ruby, would have felt maybe that, you know, was the latter part necessary? Um, People might say, look, you're a journalist, you're bound to say that. But uh, certainly it's his prerogative and it was one of about three or four major talking points that he highlighted in his report yesterday. Yeah, I'd agree with you. Look, and I suppose I am media as well, but I also know how to play the other side of it. And simply, did he need to create this row, pick on the media? I mean, they were Dublin six times. They'd had the six in a row. Why wouldn't they get more attention than everybody else? They're the greatest team of all time. They were bound there. Was that not obvious yeah. to him? Yeah, and I, I, I feel that maybe um, <coughs> with success uh, comes scrutiny and, you know, maybe <coughs> the Limerick hurlers are, are probably going to find that over the next year or so as well as they attempt to, to further their greatness. You do get more attention, uh, but the fact that Dublin are a very well-populated county, they're a very well-resourced county, they've raised the standards in terms of Gaelic football uh, up, to, up to this year. And I, I just felt that maybe... Like, at the end of the day, uh, the event happened. The media didn't um, invent it. Uh, it did happen, and the media reported it. Yeah, there was, there was, there, there was a, a probably a large focus on it, probably a, an extensive reaction. There was pictures on the front page of the Irish Independent. Um, yeah, but I would say other counties got a fair good grilling as well, Ruby, and I would, I would reference Monaghan, um, I would reference Down. And I would reference Cork. They, they all got lots of scrutiny in the media as well. It may not have reached front page. And John Coslow definitely feels that the, the, the attention on Dublin was more feverish than other counties. But from my mind, um, I think every county learned a lesson in that they held their hands up pretty quickly. Uh, now, I know Ronan McCarthy would protest he's, he's, um, he's, he's kind of, I won't say innocence, that's the wrong word, but he would protest that they were in a public spot uh, at a time when they were trying to adhere to social distancing restrictions. But my point is that all counties got a fair scrutiny, I think. Dublin were the the Harlem Globetrotters of Gaelic football at the time, so naturally enough, most of the attention was going to go on them, I feel. And look, at John Costello is an astute man. He has driven Dublin to the envy of every other county in Ireland. People can talk about all the resources and all the funding that they get. John Costello is the main driver in that in that vehicle. He's done more good for Dublin GEA than, than any county board official anywhere. And he probably doesn't need to be doing this. But then again, maybe just it keeps keeps John maybe a bit amused just to have the, mm. the little few pops here and there too. And certainly, as I say, it is always interesting reading at this time of year anyway. He had a pop too with John Conlon from Westmead for questioning Dublin's level of funding. He also threw in the little kind of bouncy ball, four, four points should be awarded for a goal. Um, and he, he kind of, 
look, it's an interesting read, no matter what way you dress it up. But Damien, you can look at it that way. You know, you've referenced it at the top that it's um, it's something that a lot of people look forward to every December because this is manna from heaven for <laughs> GA journalists because there's so many nuggets. Like the the John Canellan criticism in itself would dominate the agenda in most years. The notion of four points for a goal would dominate the agenda in most years. And and to be fair to John Costello, is always incredibly obliging. Is always very affable anytime you meet him. And like this is the the gift of all gifts in a week like this to GAA journalists because there's so many column inches to be garnered from it. Yeah, I would know one or two journalists that, that decided not to use the, the media uh, slant uh, story because they felt that uh, maybe it was, it was a bit like Ruby said, was there any need for it? And it happened a long time ago and probably wasn't newsworthy. But most major outlets uh, ran that piece, Damien. And like um, from a journalist's point of view, like even I would have probably filed two separate stories on it. And maybe within those two stories was an, a further two story. So you're 100% right. Content-wise, the man never lets us down. <laughs> So uh, I think that um, just just look at it. this year. It just seemed to be maybe misplaced in the past a little bit on that. I think, but then again, I am a journalist, and I, I probably would say that in other years he he creates some great talking points. Uh, there's lots of discussion there as well. I suppose we have to bear in mind too that that Dublin do bear a lot of the scrutiny for everything that happens in the GEA. Also, so he probably feels a bit reactive to all that too in his position as CEO. I also found the, the accounts fascinating. There was a €718,561 profit in 2019, but there was a deficit last year of €172,847. Have we any other accounts from any other GA boards? How has the COVID affected all county boards? Have we seen anybody else's figures? Yeah, so a few of them have come out, Ruby. It's, it's a really, really interesting question because I think there's a, there's a massive success story uh, throughout the, the Midlands and it's, it's awfully GEA and uh, like for example Ruby they lost in the region of 260,000 uh, in 2020 they had a, a deficit there 259,983 to be to precise they turned that around into a surplus of almost 200,000 euro and that's not something to be sneezed at in the current climate when so many games were compacted um, games were missed Gate revenue would have been down, um, and people might say, "Ah, oh, Shane Lowry, he, he's involved and will have sorted out all that." Not so. Shane only came in in the, in the middle of the year, and I think Shane Lowry's uh, focus and offly will be felt in in terms of development squads and academies, and he might have fundraising days that haven't happened yet. So, so certainly not. But it just goes to be show. It just goes to show what can be achieved by counties. H- how did they do that? They certainly um, streaming was 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 an example. More, more sponsorship and commercial revenues. Uh, Michael Dignan was driving that the whole time. Gate receipts actually went up this time around because people were so hungry to go back to games. Uh, Wexford reported a surplus of an excess of €1 million Euro, um, to their annual convention uh, last week. And that's going to happen next week, but the reports are out, uh, Ruby and Damien. And that comes on the back of a 500 grand surplus for 2020. So they're definitely doing something right as well. They kind of went with the split season ahead of the GEA in general. Their streaming model is top class. The season tickets never diminished one bit at all at all. They have sponsorship channels sourced everywhere. Uh, naming rights for the stadium, obviously, again. And they're now going to upgrade Wexford Park. They're putting the money back into it as well. And another interesting story too, guys, would be Cork. Cork GEA. They're still in a bit of bother with 
with the, the kind of finances of Porky Cueve, I suppose it was a year without concerts and events really and uh, maybe hopefully next year will improve and all that so there is a kind of a, a loss of 536,000 in Porky Cueve but the county board himself re- reported a surplus of 328,000 for their, their general GEA affairs and uh, th- that's really really positive as well because um, a county like Cork probably had a few things to sort out over the last few years um, and interestingly on all this guys the GEA have decided now that next year all games will be cashless 2022 will see uh, contact, contactless payments all tickets have to be bought online uh, there will be no ticket kiosks outside of uh, venues where you can go and buy your ticket it'll all have to be done online and I guarantee you that will hike up incomes as well it'll streamline everything so it just goes to show you uh, counties were fundraising they were having sponsored walks they were doing everything they possibly could to keep the show on the road last year crucially the main point in all of this is team costs came down by an awful lot um, everything was centralised from the GEA so there was no massive expenditure and I think that's why county boards are, are reporting surpluses this time around the, the, That cashless thing, so that's going to bring an end to the days which obviously happened in recent years but happened long long time ago where you'd look at an attendance called yeah. out at like two and a half thousand and you'd be looking around going Jesus, <laughs> they must have let ten thousand people in here for free if the official attendance is only, but that's that's the cynic coming out of me yet again But, but before are we you move on, watching matches in Lurray again David? Ah now yeah. you see, now you see there now always the bitter words you know I hope you're going to retract that now and <laughs> make, make out that you know you, that, that's obviously said in jest before the solicitors from that part of Tipperary oh, are on the phone on phone to you I know I know yeah, I know yeah, yeah, I know yeah, you want to talk routes I, was referencing. I know you want to talk about Tipperary in a second but ju- just on, on the issue before that like one benefit from COVID if you can look at it that way is that it's forced an awful lot of county boards and an awful lot of sporting organisations from many codes around the country to really look at themselves and reinvent business models reinvent how accessible they are to people and maybe particularly people abroad and that maybe if there's to be one benefit that's been taken from everything over the last couple of years is that a lot of clubs county boards have really looked at themselves and have massively maximised and revolutionised how they approach things as, as a model and as a connection to the community. Yeah, well, first things first, uh, Crow Park now communicate directly to clubs like Laura and other clubs around Ireland, whereas they wouldn't have done that previously with COVID. Uh, secondly, a lot of meetings are held online and can be much more efficient. Um, the split season is probably the biggest change we've, we've seen in the GEA's history, to be honest, which it could be monumental what that will go on to achieve. And I feel that... Um, costs have been centralised and people have decided that here's the budget, here's the charter, this is how it's going to be divvied out with team expenses for, for, for backroom staff and we can't afford any more than that. So certainly an awful lot has changed since COVID, Damien. Uh, it's, a lot of it has been negative. It kept us apart, it stopped games, um, you know, outside dressing room use in bad conditions and all that. But, but really, there ha- the GEA people and the association have taken a lot of positives out of it as well. It's definitely brought communities together, even walkways around pitches, encouraging people to exercise, even the local community come in to fundraise. Uh, but go back to the very, very start of COVID, when GEA clubs were delivering messages to the, to the, to the vulnerable in community and society. That's where it started, and it hasn't stopped really since then. Finally, Damien, before we let you go, Lockmore, Castellini's run, unbelievable run with the large, the big ball and the small ball, could yeah. have come to an end this weekend versus Ballygunner. 
Yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question, Ruby. Um, they got beaten extra time by Airog uh, down in Clare last week and it's a game that they felt they could have won even though Airog were, were twice ahead by four points. Um, and a sensational run, uh, 18 weeks on the trot. And they now meet Ballygunner, who are probably a fancy team for the Munster Championship. Um, and I think that if any team can lift themselves to go again one more time, it's Lockmore Castellani because they feel that they've been written off maybe as a, as a Tipperary team and that maybe outside of Tipperary they, they can't cut it. So they certainly have a point to prove there, but uh, Ballygunner are in fine form. They had a the great win over Ballier uh, recently enough. Stephen O'Keefe, Billy O'Keefe, Desi Hutchinson, uh, Mahoney, flying it. So they're really, really our favourites. But Lockmore Castellani, they're, they're an, I suppose, an example to many clubs in Ireland. Frankie McGrath is their manager for both hurling and football. They have the same uh, selectors like some Maureen Connolly on both. The players are very organised. They are self-motivated. They, they run the show themselves in a lot of the ways. Um, their football style is apparent in hurling and, and vice versa as well. They're a ferocious, humble bunch of players that want to achieve special things. Um, they lost both county finals and tipped by a point last year. They recorded narrow victories in both this year. Not many clubs would come back from that. They really are up against it away, away from home to Ballygunner this week. But it would be the continuation of a fairy tale if they could do it. You just wonder, will the legs be sapped now with the conditions we're looking out at here uh, after eight weeks, 18 weeks on the trot? It's, it'll be a monumental ask, but you couldn't put it past the metre, guys. OK, we'll leave it there. That game on TG Carher, uh, RTE on Saturday evening has the uh, Balakala. Uh, Kill McCud game in the Leinster Hurling Championship so plenty of top quality fair to enjoy we, lo- floods of text in here Damien saying by no stretch of the imagination do you need to lose that stone and a half so you know just important to pass that on to make oh. you feel better about yourself <laughs> that's, you know? that's my mother that's there my you mother. go well she's texting 51552 <laughs> look after yourself uh, Damien Lawlerwood is there as he is regularly looking back on some of those big GA stories of the week we're going to chat about that uh, situation involving Scarlets and the Heineken Champions Cup after the break stay with us With Green Farms on-the-go chicken bites, 100% natural and packed with protein. Available in selected Tesco's nationwide. Game on, rugby. Well, welcome back to Game On. So the Scarlets have forfeited Saturday's Champions Cup opener against Bristol Bears as they are unable to put a side together. 32 frontline players, including all their international stars, are in isolation in a hotel in County Antrim outside Belfast. Sean Holly joins us on the line. Sean, what does this forfeit mean for the Scarlets' European journey? Well, it's going to be really tough now, isn't it? You know, uh, conceding uh, a bonus point win to Bristol. I mean, away wins in, in Europe are really, really difficult to get, but, uh, you know, they, at least if they travel, they could get something out of it, if not a win, you know, looking at Bristol's form. But, you know, it's devastation, really, to start the European campaign, and it's through no fault of their own. Obviously, it's 10 days till when they, they had to do 10 days in quarantine. That means they get out on Friday, and it was basically a decision taken by their own management that it wasn't fair to put those players on the pitch on Saturday. No, look, they've had a lot of isolation, both in South Africa and in Belfast. They will have done minimal training. You know, the Scarlets had a lot of injuries before um, the international window. Uh, They managed to squeeze through with some good wins, a couple of losses, but then they lost a lot of players to the international window who would have picked up some injuries as well. So I think they were missing 14 or 15, you know, with injury, aside from all of the isolation issues. So when you add that up, you know, and you're going into a big European game against 
you know, a bit of a European powerhouse in Bristol, then they've taken the decision that it's player welfare that they are considering. They're looking after their players. There's a lot of games left this season. And I think it's a sensible decision. But, Sean, how has this been greeted in Wales? Because I, I know the reaction here today has been surely some accommodation could have been made, surely they could have rescheduled it and maybe played. They would be weak in teams, but at least put some kind of a team out, say, during the Six Nations or find a window somewhere that this could be played because this will impact, no doubt, on the sporting integrity of the competition. Yeah, I totally agree. It's been mixed views here. I mean, uh, first and foremost, there's been a lot of empathy towards the Scarlets for taking the decision. You know, it's quite a humane decision. They recognise the players have been away from their families. It's coming up to Christmas that they haven't had a lot of training. Uh, so player welfare has taken precedent. And that's been really well received, you know, here in South Wales. There's disappointment because it's a, an Anglo-Welsh derby. It's a ch- chance for the supporters during the holiday period to get up to Bristol and cheer on and, and see their team that they haven't seen for several weeks because of the international window. So there's been some disappointment and anger around that. And that anger has sort of been multiplied in the fact that, you know, common sense doesn't seem to have prevailed through no fault of their own. The Scarlets excited about going out and playing in the URC out in South Africa get again cancelled. They get isolated. They get travelled to a different country to isolate. And through no fault of their own, you know, they're, they're barely able to, to get home to play a massive fixture. Surely, then, surely there's some window somewhere that they can play this game. Um, it, I think they're fearful of setting a precedent mm. um, for, you know, during these times that they may have to do it over and over and there'll be ramifications, but common sense surely has to prevail. But to look at it from the outside in, like somebody had to go to South Africa and to be fair to the South African teams they made the trek up to Europe to play here there was this suggestion that they would decamp to Italy and base themselves there for the long term which is impacting on their family lives and everything else so there's an unbelievable chunk of hard luck involved for the teams who found themselves in South Africa when the new variant broke out but can you explain to us how it has come to pass that the Scarlets find themselves in Belfast and not find themselves either either quarantining in in Celtic Manor or quarantining in their own homes? I I really don't know. I don't know that because, you know, a similar situation happened to Cardiff. I think they were in London. Uh, they managed to get some of their players home. I really don't know that, that how that happened. I mean, you know, I, I suppose, you know, going to Northern Ireland, is uh, it was getting flights out of South Africa was an issue because the it went down to the wire. They had to be out of there by 4 a.m. UK, UK time on that Sunday, the, the day after they were due to play the game. So in terms of, of trying to get out of the country, I can only imagine that it was um, the, the, flight, the only flight they could get was out to Belfast. And, uh, you know, we have uh, some restrictions on, on flight in and out of Cardiff at the moment, but certainly we can come into, into Bristol and London. What happened there, I don't know, but... Whatever would have happened, even if they got back over here, they would have been under huge pressure to field the team uh, in that first game because of the injuries and, and the welfare issues. So it's left them in a real predicament, but they've taken the decision. I think they're going to back themselves to, to do well enough in the rest of the pool, but it's a tall order giving Bristol five points in the first round. It's a massive order, is right. Obviously, the Ospreys and the Dragons did try and do their bit. They did offer players, but it came down to front row players and then whatever players they took being cup tied. So, I guess getting guys on loan was never really a runner, was it? No, you know, from my experience, you know, you, you, you want to help each other out, but, you know, with the registration issues, then, you know, as soon as you do loan and re register a player, then they are 
that club's player for the whole of the pool stages, you know, and you can't imagine that uh, with the, the, the resources available to each region in Wales that they would offer up uh, front row players, as you rightly say, where you have to stipulate so many in that initial squad, any couple of injuries, and you've given over your third or fourth choice tight dead or hooker to a, a, a region just to help out. You're not able to get them back for the rest of the pool stages. So, huge predicament, a huge set of slice of luck, as you as you rightly say. But, you know, these are unprecedented times and uh, we just have to get on with it and do the best we can. Mm. Just, Sean, just obviously we're going to be building up a lot over the course of the week to the Irish provinces and people will look at Leinster every year as one of the teams that you would expect to be involved at the latter stages of the, the Heineken Champions Cup Ospreys have obviously made the strongest start of the, the Welsh regions in the URC what sort of an impact could they make or could any of the Welsh sides make in Europe this year and, and, and overall how wide open do you see the Champions Cup this year? Well, I see it wide open but I don't see the Welsh side's figuring too much. I mean, you're right, the Ospreys probably have the best chance, along with Cardiff, although Cardiff, you know, with, with the side that they have to put out against the reigning champions this week, are going to get off to a pretty difficult start. So, as far as the Ospreys go, they have a home game on Sunday. It's sale at home. They've, they've bounced back from a pretty poor performance after the break against Connor to beat Elster, who, of course, beat Leinster previously. So, you know, they, they're hot and cold. They have some players to come back. You know, they're playing without Alan Wynne jones George North, Justin Tiprick, but they have some players back. I think they could, if they just win their home games and maybe nick it away when do something in that. As for the other teams, well, Scarlet and Cardiff are off to a very difficult start, so it's going to be tough. And the Dragons have, have had a difficult start in the URC. You know, I wouldn't go far past, you know, the big French powerhouses, and I always look to Leinster, but I've just got a sneaky feeling the Munster have it in their in their in their armory this year to do a little bit better in both competitions. So I've got a bit of a soft spot for Munster, but I think they could do better this year. That'll be music to my ears, Sean Holly. Thanks a million for taking our call. We're going to take a quick break. Dinners made easy with Green Farm's high-protein cooked chicken breast fillet range. Available in selected stores nationwide. Game on European football. And you're very welcome back to the programme. We're going to chat at Champions League and a lot more between now and the end of the programme. Halftime in the two games ongoing in Group A of the Champions League. This is the final night of games in the group stages. Paris Saint-Germain leading uh, Club Bruges by three goals to nil. Uh, fairly comprehensive stuff there. Kylian Mbappe with uh, goals in the second and seventh minute. Lionel Messi with the third just before half time. Uh, but the big result, the surprising result, is Manchester. City who went fairly full strength uh, a goal down to uh, or beat Leipzig now the, the business end of this was pretty much done and dusted before the night uh, Man City guaranteed top spot Paris Saint-Germain already guaranteed second place Mark Langdon is with us as he is uh, each Tuesday um, Mark quite a, a turn up for the books obviously a lot of football to be played here but I don't think too many people would have tipped uh, or be Leipzig to be uh, in control against Manchester City 
Uh, absolutely not. Um, not with the, the crisis, really, that, that Leipzig are in at the moment. Just sat their coach, uh, Jesse Marsh, the American. There's no crowd um, allowed in the stadium because of uh, COVID restrictions. They're missing a number of players because of COVID uh, as well. Um, and if anything, City are lucky, really. It's only 1-0. Uh, Pep Guardiola's looked very glum on, 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 on the sort of touchline. You, you've seen Leipzig create a number of chances, apart from the Sabochlai goal. Uh, Foden hitting the post for Man City was um, as close as they came but it, it is a, it's a really strong team really that City have put out considering that there's nothing riding on the game maybe although the players are there their mind's not totally focused uh, maybe on you know um, if it was a bigger game maybe you'd see a slightly different attitude so they're there in sort of body uh, but, but maybe not um, you know putting everything into the game I was reading the back of your own paper this morning, Mark. 51 goals these two sides have scored in all competitions this year. I guess you were expecting a little bit more than a 1-0 at this stage. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's been enough chances, really, for, for more goals. Um, but it, it's, it's more the fact... I mean, I think Leipzig have created enough chances, but it's City um, just not being as, as slick and, and as creative as what we've come to expect of them. I suppose the, the fact that they, like, like I say, because they've already got top spot maybe um, they're already thinking uh, about sort of bigger matches to come in the Premier League. The attitude hasn't been right for uh, the first half. I wouldn't be surprised if Pep Guardiola got into the players at half-time because he's obviously picked a, a strong team. He feels like that they should be going out there and winning this game. Uh, you know, I, I think other managers, and I'm sure Jurgen Klopp will take the opportunity to rotate um, you know, heavily tonight, given what's to come for all of these teams with Christmas on the horizon. But he's picked a team strong enough to win this game in the first half, just not being City anywhere near their best. So um, don't be surprised if there's a reaction... Um, um, at half time because I don't think Guardiola will be putting up with that you know he's picked a team um, you know to win this game and they've they've not put it all in in that first half um, Mark obviously Man United in action tomorrow night they've already guaranteed themselves top spot in Group F but you mentioned Leipzig there and the, the turmoil at Leipzig obviously Ralph Raniuk left there in 2019 there's been you know a change of ethos around the club since then but his fingerprints are all over the Red Bull project if you can put it that way so is the trouble at Leipzig kind of the further fallout of um, Rania causing carnage in places like Leipzig and Lokomotiv and everywhere else that he's gone in recent years no I, I don't think so I, I think that this um, sort of um, carnage um, sort of, uh, of this season really has come about because you know Leipzig's model um, is all about um, you know, recruiting young players, developing them, and then selling them on for a tidy profit. Um, and you know, they, they've done one part of that aspect in terms of developing them and then selling on the players. But the problem is that the ones they brought in this time around probably aren't quite ready. You know, to sell both of your centre backs in the same transfer window. Uh, Upamecano went to Bayern Munich. Canate went to Liverpool. I mean, that's already a lot to take out of a team. Julian Nagelsmann, the coach, also went to Bayern Munich. And then Sabitzer, you know, a really experienced midfielder, also um, joined the other two at Bayern Munich. So the fact that Bayern Munich wanted a, a coach and two players, uh, you know, tells you how good that they were and how influential they were to the team. So I do think with these sort of teams that 
um, you know, the whole sort of ethos around them is to bring in young players, um, make them better and then sell them on for a profit. There are times in that cycle when you maybe don't get the balance quite right. And I think that Leipzig have found that out um, this time around, really, because they've um, just sold, I think, probably one, maybe even two, too many. Um, and, and, and it's not it's not worked out for them. They are battling hard to make sure that they're in the Europa League. And I think we've seen an improved performance from them um, tonight against City. And even if they do, I mean, even if they do finish third, I don't think they could have really expected to have finished ahead of Man City and Paris um, in the first place. So maybe, you know, it's about par for them if they can finish third. It's in the Bundesliga where they've been really disappointing. Right, there are plenty of dead rubbers in the Champions League games tonight. But whilst Liverpool are true, Milan can get a result Porto and Atletico are on the other side of that group I guess Porto will be hoping Jurgen Klopp doesn't field too weak a team yeah it's a really it's it's really interesting um, you know as to what kind of the, the, the whole mechanics of that group uh, um, you know the the, the, the it's always the thing, isn't it? When you play against the big team last, there is probably an advantage to playing them last. You just hope that they're already through. And maybe it's worked out well for Milan that they've got Liverpool last. And um, I think I think the Italians will, will fancy their chances of, of winning the game and putting big pressure um, on the other two teams in that group. Yeah, Porto are in pole position in terms of the fact that the, the, the group's in their, in their favour at the moment. I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not convinced about them as a, as a team. I know Atletico have not been playing well this season and, you know, really expecting more from Diego Simeone's side. I just wonder if tonight's the night where, um, you know, with everything on the line, where we see the best of Atletico, um, you, you're right that Porto will be, be cheering on um, Liverpool. I was surprised in the last game when Jurgen Klopp picked a, a stronger than expected team. I haven't seen the side yet for um, th- this trip to San Siro, well, but I, I haven't. I mean, I, I, I'd, I'd be amazed if he doesn't. Well, it's, it's yeah. Alisson. Well, it, the, the the bad news for Milan is it's Mane and Salah both start. Divock Origi is given a start uh, up front, but it's Alisson in goal. Uh, Nico Williams, Konate, Nat Phillips and Simicas across the back. So that's fairly makeshift. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, Tyler Morton and Minamino in midfield. And then Mane, Origi and Salah up top. So um, I, I would have hoped that he might have given Kevin Kelleher a run considering he rates him so highly. But it's a, it's a kind of a mixed bunch from Liverpool. It's, it's maybe like the Barcelona of old. Like we won't worry too much about our defence because we trust the three boys up top to do as much damage as they can. Yeah, it's quite strange because uh, I think most Liverpool fans probably, if they were asking who they wanted rested and made sure they don't get injured for the game, probably would have been number one Salah, number two Mane, um, or Van Dijk would have been in there, obviously. But um, I'm I'm a little bit surprised that he's gone sort of with the, uh, if not first choice forward line, certainly, you know, close to it, but um, not surprised really with with a lot of those changes in defence and midfield and um, I, I, I think I think Milan will be sort of confident that that team, albeit it's very explosive going forward, with such a kind of makeshift defence as you mentioned there, um, you know, it's quite difficult I think to get the organisation right when you're playing a completely you know brand new back four that just won't have played together properly. Um, you know certainly um, you know for for a long time maybe been together in a League Cup game or something like that. But um, yeah, it, it is definitely I think. Uh, 
uh, one that, that the Italians will be be looking at that team sheet and thinking there's a big opportunity to win the game and um, certainly uh, in, in Porto they won't be too happy at the moment with Jurgen Klopp I doubt they will. Real Madrid were only need a draw against Inter Milan later on tonight, but they were very good at the weekend, Mark, in the, in the La Liga. They've gone eight points clear at the top and they beat Real Sociedad in convincing, convincing fashion. They did, yeah. I mean, you know, Ancelotti, um, he, he didn't really pull up any trees at Everton when he was there last season. I didn't think that job suited him particularly well. I, he's not somebody that's going to, you know, grow a club and be interested in sort of the youth team and, um, you know, uh, that, that kind of project um, that a lot of the managers use for, for a word these days. He's much better with ready-made stars and he creates an environment that sort of enables them to sort of feel like they're superstars and then they go out and deliver for him. He, of course, was, you know, a, a top-level player himself and it's what he's done throughout his career. When you look at all the, the big clubs he's managed, really, he's much more, I, I think, of a, a, a coach that would be suited maybe to say like this Paris Saint-Germain team but he's he's definitely got Vinicius going I think Vinicius has been the the, the standout star in Spanish football this season you know the, everyone was asking where the next star was coming from Messi departed and you know Ronaldo went before him if there is to be one it probably is Vinicius he has he has been sensational um, for, for Real Madrid on the left wing he, he came at a huge cost a few years ago and I think it's fair to say he was a, a disappointment really up until until this campaign but it's clicked for him now and he um, is carrying Real Madrid towards the title helped by the fact that you know Atletico as I mentioned earlier and Barcelona we've spoken about them a lot with, with all of their problems um, this season you know there's maybe a weakness in some of their rivals but Real Madrid have taken full advantage and I'm really excited to see sort of how Vinicius develops um, you know, for the rest of this season and maybe even looking further ahead, we've got a World Cup at the end of the year, just how, you know, he can, you know, sort of fit into that Brazilian team because he's somebody that hasn't really been selected for Brazil um, that often so far, but you could get him, you know, how do you get him and Neymar into the same team? He feels like he's the heir apparent anyway to, um, to, to Neymar on, on that left-hand side. Mark, I think if my maths is right, we have, um, is it 11 of the 16 teams we know who's qualified? There's a couple of them where, like Ruby mentioned, Real Madrid, Inter are both qualified, but the positions have to be decided in the group. Chelsea and Juventus, likewise. In the grand scheme of things, when you look at the calibre of the clubs who will advance to the round of 16, do you desperately need to go all out to top the group anymore? Oh, it, it, I always think it helps because it gives you it gives you the best opportunity to get an easier tie in the last sixteen. I, um, you know, I, I think that somebody will win the group and end up with Paris Saint Germain, and they'll be bemoaning that fact. But I think if you do win it, you're more likely to get an easier draw. So I do think that there is an advantage. I wouldn't necessarily go all out. I think that you know, there has to be. You've got to respect the sort of um, fatigue in the players, and it's not an absolute must-win. But you know, you just give yourself the best opportunity of progressing if you win your group um, and you know you might end up with a really hard game but you're more likely to end up with a, an easier one what we don't know of course is how the um, change in the rule of the away goals is going to impact really um, on these latter stages because it's often said particularly over two legs um, you know that you wanted to be um, at home second because um, you, you knew what you had to do and um, but, but now we've got no away goal rule in operation 
will that we just don't know whether it'll actually be more of an advantage because some people are saying it will be because it means if it goes to extra time you've got 30 minutes extra mm. um, you know to, to try to win the game in front of your home fans and there isn't that kind of payback for the away team uh, you know because if they score it doesn't mean um, sort of any more you know it, it's just one goal rather than sort of you know accumulation of away goals so I, I feel like that they're sort of the, the general belief is that it's actually going to be maybe even more of an advantage to a home team to be playing um, at home second so that is of course another reason maybe to win the group it, it might not turn out like that it, it might actually cancel it out and it's not as important to uh, win the group but it, there's, that's certainly one theory going around at the moment that you want to sort of be at home second because if it does go to extra time you've got that extra time in front of your own fans Before we, we chat about Jude Bellingham who's made most of the headlines over the course of the week for his comments about the referees and maybe it's indicative of where the mood is around Dortmund at the minute Any, before we move off from the Champions League. Anything else that catches your eye that we've uh, we've failed to give the due time to? No, I, I think probably just um, Paris Saint-Germain, who are three new up against Bruges. You mentioned it earlier on. It's probably been one of their best performances really the whole season um, for, from Paris in this first half, where. Um, Mbappe scored twice in the opening seven minutes. Messi scored an absolutely sort of trademark Messi goal. It was a fantastic assist from Mbappe, but I, I don't know how many times I've seen Messi pick the ball up on the right-hand side, sort of cut in to about the middle of the goal, edge of the area onto his left foot and curl it into the bottom corner. It just feels like I've seen that goal hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, and, and he did another one of those. But the pressure is growing on Pochettino. And I wonder if that's why he's picked such a strong team tonight, because they were awful against Lons uh, at the weekend. Wijnaldum scored a 92nd minute equaliser um, that got them a barely deserved draw. And, you know, the knives are out most definitely for Pochettino. He, of course, used to play for the club, so there's a little bit of leeway there, but not much. And, you know, I, I think going into 2022, he is probably fighting for his job. I think there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Him and Leonardo, the sporting director's relationship is um, not great, I think it's fair to say. Um, so uh, even if sort of he, he wins the league and he should win the league, it's one to watch out for, I think, over the next couple of months. Just that mood around Paris. Yeah, PSG were like Liverpool at the weekend. They needed Fergie time as well. But Jude Bellingham, for an 18-year-old, Mark, was it the cleverest thing in the world to do to go question the referee for that match? Uh, no, I don't think it was. Um, so, uh, you know, for, for context, Borussia Dortmund lost the game against Bayern Munich 3-2. Um, there was two controversial moments in the game. First of all, Borussia Dortmund were denied a penalty. Um, it probably was one that there was contact on Marco Royce, who went down. Um, the referee said no, and VAR didn't ask the referees as via to, to go and have a look at it on, on the screen. So play went on. Not long after that, uh, Bayern Munich were given a penalty for a handball by Mats Hummels. Um, again, the referee didn't actually give it. It was VAR that, that told him to go and have a look. I think in the modern game, it's absolutely a penalty. Mr. Header, um, it hit him on the arm. You know, I, I, it's unlucky. I don't think it was deliberate, but if your arm's away from, from your body, it's just a penalty um, these days. So um, straight after the game, Dortmund are upset. Straight after the game, um, Bellingham is interviewed on TV, still in his kit, 
um, and he sort of asked about the performance of the referee and he brought up the fact that, um, that the referee's fire was um, when he, back in 2005 when he was a young assistant referee in, in sort of the third tier of Germany he was banned for six months for his part um, in match fixing and you know, but Bellingham kind of, I, I think he went too far, not into, I, I think there's a wider topic and discussion to be had where he said, you know, should a referee that's been sort of found guilty of match fixing and admitted it, should he be allowed to referee ever again? And I think that that's a, a fair comment, but he kind of linked that incident back to the one um, that we sort of just seen sort of about half an hour earlier. And, you know, I think that's where he went too far. He got a 40,000 euro fine, which Dortmund have accepted. But I, I think it is probably part now of a wider debate um, as to whether any, whether Felix Weiss should be refereeing um, anymore. If you go back to that incident, um, sort of, what was that, sort of 15, 16 years ago, um, it involved Robert Heuser, the, the, the German referee who was sent to prison for two years for you know for being kind of the main referee that instigated the match fixing uh, Felix Fire as a young guy was sort of an assistant to him he was paid 300 euros to kind of look the other way I suppose but he was then part of the whistleblowing kind of um, incident that, that led to the um, sort of um, the, the, the imprisonment of Heutzer the referee so I think that was taken into consideration and, and Zvira has sort of worked his way up. He's a FIFA ref, he's a UEFA ref and I don't I, I don't think he did, you know, a huge amount wrong in that Borussia Dortmund game. Certainly not to be, uh, you know, have any kind of sort of old mud chucked at him. I, I thought that, that, that Bellingham went too far, albeit he has sort of started a, a new debate in Germany as to whether, um, you know, maybe they were too lenient on Zvira before. Well, maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Maybe Leopard can't change the spots. Mark Langdon, thanks a million for taking our call. I'm afraid that's all we have for time for again this evening. Andrew O'Connor was your producer, or your, yeah, your producer, Damien O'Mara presented, and I just waffled along with him. Uh, Tara Stewart is up next. Thanks for listening. Green Farm. Fuel your day with Green Farm's high-protein cooked chicken breast fillets. 100% natural and packed with flavour. 